we can dive in. <laughs> There's an oft-repeated story that comes from a Hindu epic called the Mahabharata. Some of you probably know it. And in that story, a wise man is asked, what is the most amazing thing in all of life? And the answer the wise man gives is that the most amazing thing in all of life is that we see others die all around us, but we never think that we will die. Years ago, when Stephen Levine was teaching many workshops on death and dying, he tells a story about one time he was up on a stage in front of a large audience, maybe hundreds of people, and he looked out into the auditorium and he said to them, how many of you are going to die? (laughs) And he said it took a really long time. For everyone to raise their heads. It's like we just. What is that? <laughs> what is that? We just can't believe. Oh, yeah. A teacher named Sam Harris wrote this recently. He said, While we try not to think about it, nearly the only thing we can be certain of in this life is that we will one day die and leave everything. And yet, paradoxically, it seems almost (coughs) impossible to believe that this is so. Our felt sense of what is real seems not to include our own death. We doubt the one thing that is not open to any doubt at all. (laughs) What is going on in us when we turn away, when we are caught in this disbelief? This isn't about death, but it points to what I, I want to uh, bring into the room. Years ago, oh, my favorite uncle had a stroke. He was really my hero. He had been an outdoorsman, a hiker, an athletic person. He had been in his, fully inhabiting his body. And um, he had a stroke, it left him incapacitated, and the first time I saw him after his stroke, I was struck dumb. This man who I had thought of as so vital suddenly was lying on a bed. He could speak, but he was unable to move. I couldn't believe it. It just struck me dumb. Then I realized a little later that what it brought up for me, mostly underneath that disbelief, was this feeling of vulnerability. This feeling of, in this case, somebody who I had thought of as a protector, as a hero, as someone who would always take care of me in some way. And there he was, incapacitated. And I didn't like that feeling of raw vulnerability. I tell this story because it is impossible to contemplate what we are contemplating today, illness, disability, dying, without it touching our feelings of vulnerability. 
That's what it brings up. So I wanted to name this and invite us today together to recognize in ourselves those feelings if they should arise today and make space for them. In the in the spiritual life, we could say, vulnerability is not seen as a bad thing, but as a doorway to a deeper knowing of truth. So we are invited to allow vulnerability without making it, if we can, and we may need the help of others with this as well, to see if we can allow the vulnerability without a big story that it means, oh, I'm not safe, but can we let it be as an energy that we can come into some kind of uh, relationship with, to see it as, a, as an openness to what is actually going on, to truth. And I, at the same time, I want to invite in vulnerability. I also, and I want to say in that regard, if you are feeling at some point today vulnerable or feeling a little overwhelmed or whatever comes up for you, anxiety, fear, this simple practice of putting one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly, just coming back inside yourself and feeling yourself here, this can be very helpful, very grounding. Just, here I am. It's locating yourself. Here I am, alive in this moment. So, um, the other thing I want to invite into the room, because we also bring today together into this room, we bring our courage, we bring our great compassion, and we bring the gift of our presence to everyone else here. We are in good company today in our vulnerability, in our courage, in our compassion. This is all part of being together today. And this good company, I feel, you know, is a vital part of this contemplation that it's much more difficult on our own to bring up some of the territory we'll be looking at today. But in the good company of others, we feel supported. We feel maybe safer. You know that thing about it takes a village. Maybe it takes a village to help us prepare well for dying. And really, your, your, your coming here today is evidence of your courage and your compassion and your willingness to open. There are many people who would not come to such a day. You know, they'd do almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> Jury duty, anything. Get me out of here. You know. <laughs> so in the... In our culture, as I said, death is somewhat of a taboo subject. You know, we, 
we just don't have, it's hard to talk about it. And it's hard to have the conversations that we actually need to have to, to prepare well for our dying. But in the Buddhist tradition, birth and death are always mentioned together. They're, they come together. They're not separate. With birth, you, you get death. Death doesn't come without birth. They go together. So, um, in our culture, how do we talk about death? Well, we talk about it sometimes as a legal matter or a financial matter. The lawyers have found a way to, you know, (laughs) it's a whole piece of law to help people prepare their wills and their estates and their financial uh, matters so that when they die, things are in order. Maybe that's some of the conversation that goes on, or life insurance policies. This This can be a focus for people. And we also think of the physical care of the body. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on caretaking and um, long-term care insurance. So we make sure somebody will be there taking care of us if we need them. We, you know, the there's some uh, emphasis given to that. We live in a materialistic culture, so the focus is on the body, taking care of the body. But in the Buddhist tradition, from which insight meditation comes, the focus is how to take care of the mind and heart. That is seen as the most important thing in preparing to die. Not so much about the body, but how are we taking care of our precious heart and mind. What we, what we come into relationship with when we sit. How are we going to take care of that aspect of ourselves? We could say that mindfulness, every time we sit in meditation, it is a profound act of self-care. We are learning how to be with no our mind intimately, know our habits of mind intimately, know how to work with those habits of mind, and take care of ourselves in that way. We learn how to be with our experience moment to moment, breath by breath, just as we are. We become familiar with the ways in which we suffer and how we can relieve that suffering. One time the Buddha went to visit an old sick man and he said to the man, although the body be sick, let not your mind be sick. Thus you should train yourself. The body and the mind from this point of view have separate journeys. What dies is the body. The mind continues. Now, that may seem strange to our Western way of thinking, our Western ears. 
but it is the basis of um, meditation practice and this understanding that mind has a life of its own. Achan Chah wrote, The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. We must be able to be at peace with the body, whatever state it is in. The Buddha taught that we should ensure that it's only the body that is locked up in jail and not let the mind be imprisoned along with it. As your body begins to run down and deteriorate with age, you don't need to resist that, but don't let your mind deteriorate with it. Keep the mind separate. Give energy to the mind by realizing the truth of the way things are. So, of course, here he's speaking not just of the cognitive mind, the mind that is based in the functioning of the brain, but mind as consciousness, mind as spirit, mind as soul, mind as Buddha nature, that part of our being that will be with us as we are dying. And it behooves us to be in a uh, good working relationship with that part of ourselves. We would do well to consider what Kabir the poet said, what is found now is found then. Our habits of mind recycle, don't they? <laughs> we, we, if we've spent any time on the cushion, we know our habits of mind by now pretty well, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. Yeah, and we learn how to work with those habits, and we learn how to uh, relieve the, the suffering that they bring. So why would it be any different in our dying process? Angry people die angry. Worried people die worried. Our, well, our mental habits are well-worn grooves that keep repeating. So the very basis of meditation is the retraining of the mind to have better habits. And it is the ongoing discovery that we have other options than repeating the same old stories. Do you want to die repeating the same old story you've been telling yourself the whole life? Well, maybe you will. We don't know. But there is this possibility of cultivating other resources than the same old, same old. So, today we will contemplate this thing called death. And what do we mean when we speak of death? Do we all agree about what death is? Probably not. In this room today, there are people from other cultures, other races, other communities, other theologies, where there may be a variety of of views and opinions about death. So I want to mention just a few of the more common views of death, just as a starting point. This is not exhaustive, but just as a starting point. A very common view in our culture is death as oblivion. Death as the end, as the complete cessation of consciousness. 
So that's perhaps something you grew up with, I grew up with in the Presbyterian Church. Or maybe there was eternal damnation or the hope for heaven or whatever. Another view that's common is that death is some kind of big mistake. You know, that it's God went awry and it's, it's an insult that I have to die. And so there's a lot of anger about death. And we see this sometimes in the medical system where there's this idea that death, we need to do battle with death. We need to do everything we can to outwit death. It's a failure if you die. Yes, that's a very strong view in some parts of the medical world. Judith Leaf says, in this view, it is an act of heroism to go down fighting and never give up no matter how bad it gets. Doctors with this attitude refuse to admit defeat. In their battle with death, they leave no tube uninserted. (laughs) (laughs) They exhaust every possible strategy, no matter how harsh, no matter what the cost, and no matter how much the patient may be suffering. Yeah, how about that? And they make it clear to their patients that to give up is to fail, to lose the battle. Another view of death that we might have is that it is so disruptive. (laughs) I've got things to do. I've got a list. I've got places to go, people to see, conversations to have. Death can't happen because I'm not ready. I'll never be ready. There's always more to do. So death is a threat to our unfinished projects or plans. Or death as loss. Death means the loss of everyone I love, everything I love, of love itself. So perhaps we partake, all of us, of all of these to some degree, but maybe we have a valence toward, more of a valence toward one than another. The specific meaning of death, the view of death, varies from person to person. So we're in a little bit, we're going to break up into small groups so you have a chance to explore where you are with your views of death, your personal relationship to death. What does it mean to you to die? Again, Judith Leaf says, although we, we all have preconceptions about death, they are often murky and hidden from view. We seldom examine or question them, but we should look into them because those preconceptions have real effects. If we think death means either heaven or hell, and Jesus Christ is our Savior, then you will, that will affect the way you relate to other people dying, right? Not as in addition to yourself. When our experience is distorted by speculation, it is difficult to see clearly. We lose the ability to distinguish distinguish what we know directly from what we have heard secondhand, what we believe on faith, 
what we cook up out of fear and what is wishful thinking. So it is important to bring our own personal assumptions to light and find out what they are so we're not unconsciously holding on to some half-baked rumor. In the Tibetan tradition, uh, you know, they have these de- these tankas with deities on them, like this is one of them. And they, these deities represent, they're not seen as gods, but they represent qualities of consciousness. So this is compassion, this, this deity here. But there's a deity called Yamantaka, who is a, is a, a big, fierce-looking de- deity. And he's not angry, but he, he represents, the, the dest- he's called the destroyer of death. What does that mean? It means that he represents the possibility of not being afraid of death, but seeing death as something that can be more of a revelation, of a possibility, of awakening, of a way of um, bringing more light into our own uh, understanding of truth. So in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, it is said we should aspire to be one of three kinds of practitioners. One, we should aspire to die with no regrets. We have lived a good life and done our best to prepare. The second level of aspiration, we should aspire to die without fear, feeling confident that we will be able to be present and peaceful throughout the process. And lastly, we might aspire to view death as something to look forward to. Why? Because the highest awakening is possible in the actual experience of dying. So many people in the Tibetan tradition practice for this, with this aspiration in mind, to make of death part of their practice, their learning, their opening to the greater truth of existence. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great... Zen master who uh, right now is possibly dying. He's in the hospital. He had a brain hemorrhage, and we don't know. But he he is a, a manifestation of what I'm talking about. He wrote a wonderful book called No Death, No Fear. And I want to read you what he says about death, and I want to hold him in our hearts today as we as we speak together about dying and death, because he, he brought this teaching to us. He said, Our greatest fear is that when we die, we will become nothing. Many of us believe that our entire existence is only a lifespan, beginning the moment we are born and ending the moment we die. We believe that we are born from nothing, and when we die, we become nothing. 
And so we are filled with fear of annihilation. The Buddha has a very different understanding of our existence. So this is part of what we we come into relationship as we practice. It's basically the understanding that it is the body that dies. The mind continues. Just as when you go to sleep at night, does your mind continue? The body is asleep. You're not so identified with your body, right? You're not thinking about your body. You're asleep. But the mind, what's the mind doing? It doesn't vanish. Yeah, it's a mystery. Like Debbie said, it's a great mystery. So this view of the continuity of consciousness, the continuity of mind, is, you know, for many of us, a theory. We don't know. We haven't died. We don't. But it's open for your consideration as, you know, something to to learn about. Okay. So... This is um, a little bit of the territory of, of practice. And I want to say we, we are working against the clock today because we have... <laughs> what can we do? That's the way it is. <laughs> time, time. Um, so we are giving a brief overview, but I, I want to say that in terms of practices that we can do. Mindfulness practice, insight meditation includes both concentration and mindfulness. And both are important things to learn. How to concentrate, usually we start with the breath, we bring our attention to the breath, we return to the breath over and over. This creates a stability of mind a stability of consciousness that you can stay rooted in the present. You're not completely lost in distraction. In the Dhammapada, it says, if your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes, in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. To have that Stability of mind is a very useful resource in life as well as at a time when your body is going through a lot of changes. It also teaches us how to stay present with difficult sensations in the body, how not to freak out when there's pain or there's sensations that are unusual happening in the body, which we can be pretty sure will be going on as we die. So to know how to stay present with that without fear, without getting lost in all that. Mindfulness is the capacity of concentration to open to, to be present with whatever is arising, whether it's thoughts, emotions, feelings, sounds, sensations. It's that larger space of awareness that we can... Uh, allow our entire the entirety of our experience to arise, to be known, to be touched, to be recognized, to be seen, without getting, again, lost in trying to resist or lost in trying to hold on, 
but allowing our mind to be known fully in how it operates so that we see that if we get uh, a thought about something and then we go on that journey, we may end up in a fearful place that we didn't want to be on, in. So, again, mindfulness teaches us, gives us tools for staying present with a great variety of experiences. There's a saying, who is my enemy, who is my friend? The answer is, my mind is my enemy. My mind is my friend. So with meditation, we cultivate a mind that is, can be an ally with us, a resource for us, not something to battle, not something to be afraid of. To have a mind that is like a good friend. This is good practice for living. This is good practice for dying. We also have in this tradition a whole practice of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And we give regular teachings here at Spirit Rock on cultivating these four divine qualities of the heart that are like protectors that keep our minds uh, feeling safe and open and allow ourselves to love and be loved. We give many teachings on those. In the back of the room on the table, I put out a sheet with some of the phrases that you can begin to work with in your practice for cultivating these different qualities. I think it's very useful to memorize some of these phrases that really have import for you so that you they are available. You know, like a a woman who was in a car accident went immediately to her her metaphrase, may I be safe and free from harm. That just became her mantra, right? It just was there with her because she had practiced it. It's unlikely it will be there if you haven't practiced it, but if you've practiced it, it is a resource. I think taking refuge is a beautiful resource. Um, We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. Also, reflections on impermanence are very much encouraged in this tradition. If you go to any of the monasteries in Asia, every day they will chant, uh, they do chants that are reminders about the fact of impermanence. And again, I put a sheet out in the back with a a chant called the Anicca chant. Anicca is the word for impermanence that maybe we'll do it a little bit later today. And also the five reflections that we can keep close to us that are reminders of what's going on. I am of the nature to age. I am of the nature to have ill health. I am of the nature to die. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change etc. So we are not like surprised or think it's some terrible aberration when somebody dies or you know something happens to us. Many of us will get ill. Some of us will be disabled. Some of us will die like that. Some of us will die in a 
in a long process. We don't get to choose how we're going to die. So just these reflections that help us deal with the reality of it. This is another way to prepare. Another thing that is especially for the more practical part of preparing to die, but I want to mention it here, is this lovely idea of creating what is called a Dharma box before you die, which is to put in this box your favorite chants, your favorite music, your favorite poetry. What is it that you would like your friends to be offering you, your family, your loved ones? Say you're in the hospital, you're dying. Would you like a particular chant to be played, a particular piece of music. So you have this box, you've collected things, you can give them to your loved ones so they know how to best support you. Or maybe letters to people that you want to communicate with. Whatever. You can put whatever is in there. So, I feel like I've been on a... But, so this is some of the territory that we will be... um, that is part of the preparation for dying. And it's a lot. It's a lot. But it's all good, no matter what you do in any of what I've mentioned. It will be there, it will be there to help you as you are dying. So that's a wonderful thing. What a treasure trove of resources we have. And now um, we need... Yeah, sure. I, I've loved what you said, and there was one that disturbed me, and that is when you said we don't get to choose how we die, since we do get to choose how we die in many cases, as in that young woman who just showed beautifully yeah. having a conscious death in her way. Yeah. And so I found that disturbing. The way you said what, that. When I said when we don't get to choose, I meant more like she didn't get to choose that she had this illness or not. Okay, that's what I mean. We don't get to choose the illness that we're going to have. You know, I th- I've been healthy. I think, okay, what will it be? I have no idea what's going to get me. Something's going to get me. I don't have a, it doesn't appear to me that I have a choice about right. that part. How I die, yes. Okay. Yes. Can you repeat the three aspirations? One was to not be angry, and what were the other two? The, the first aspiration is to die without, re- without regrets, having led a good life kept your relationships up to date, clean, complete. That's the first. The second aspiration to die without fear because you have prepared your, maybe you've worked with dying people, maybe you've prepared yourself internally with understanding the process that the body's going to go through, the process that will go happen. So there's no fear of the process. And the third is to see dying as the possibility of enlightenment itself, of awakening, of coming into full awakeness. Another practice opportunity. Yes, a big one. When everything, you know, practice is based on letting go. So we don't, we mostly resist letting go. We think of it as like, deprivation and scary and all that. But the truth is, when we do let go, 
that's when the good stuff really happens. So we need to get with that understanding. And of course, death being the big letting go, that's why it's seen as an opportunity. Okay, we need to move on. We'll have a little time later for more questions, but um, we need to actually move on. So, um, so we're going to... Um, We're going to break up into small groups of three because we want you to engage with this material more personally. So in your group of three, um, we will do an inquiry together. We call this contemplative inquiry where each person will have 10 minutes to speak about your personal relationship to death. What, what, where are you in this time frame in your relationship to death? Not your theology of it or the ideology of it, but what is your personal, your feelings, your thoughts, your views, your attitudes? What, what is it, what is up for you around dying? Your own death, other people's death. So it's a pretty broad topic, but... Close your eyes, settle in, feel into your heart, feel into what is it that you want to say. Take your time with this. There's no need to rush. So as one person is speaking, the other two people are sitting there and holding the space, just allowing that person to have their own experience. So you're not there to agree with them or give them advice, or judge them, or anything, but you're there as a compassionate witness to hold the space for them. And they will do the same for you when it is your turn. Okay. So, um, each person will have ten minutes. I will ring the bell at the end of each segment, each time, ten minutes, and then we'll move on to the next person. You can spread out in the room. So right now, find two other people to form a little group with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.